So welcome to the podcast. This is episode 250. 250 times. Can you believe it? 250 of these. My name is Douglas Wilson. Here we are. Thanks for joining me. So I want to talk a little bit about energy. Uh, energy. Um, two, there, there are one of the things we have to fight in every, uh, in and under and behind virtually every political issue is utopianism. Now, I'm convinced that the, the, um, the true solar panel farms and the true windmill farms are all set up in utopia, and they run perfectly there, and, we, uh, <laughs> and then they pipe the energy in. Or the plan is to get them set up in utopia, and once they're up and running in utopia, then we can just have an endless supply of energy. Well, there are different – I would like to encourage you to think of energy in, in terms of square footage. Okay, the more, and I would want to argue that the fewer square feet a means of producing energy takes up, the more efficient and therefore the more moral it is. So, by that token, uh, the the most efficient, effective, and moral source of energy would be a nuclear power plant. After that would be fossil fuels. And probably I'd, I'd want to argue that natural gas would be the, the um, thing we'd want to use first, and then, um, then after that, coal, and then at the bottom of that list would be dirty coal, and then after that would be things like um, solar panel farms if you're in Arizona, or uh, windmill farms, <laughs> or a windmill to drive your pump if you're uh, if you're on the top of a windy hill. So there is no way, there's absolutely no way for windmills to supply energy needs for most of the world. It's not windy enough. There's no way for solar pan panels to um, supply the energy needs of people up in northern Finland. It's not going to happen. Now. Um, Here's how it works. What's what's happening with the green, um, with the green movement, where they're shutting, uh, you know, getting rid of nuclear, getting rid of um, these sort, you know, these sorts sources of energy, is they're going. To, we're going to get to a point where uh, everything collapses, where the the uh, the supply lines for, uh, you know. Oil being shipped in super tankers around the world. What would happen if that was disrupted? What would happen if the global order comes down and we don't have super tankers shipping oil anymore? Well, what's going to happen is every area of the world is going to resort to an energy source that's close to them. And pretty much everybody is close to dirty coal, uh, coal that burns dirty. Right now, if you want to, uh, if you if you want clean energy, you're going to have to go with something that really is clean. It, this remind this whole thing is r reminds me of 
the uh, inverse response to um, Ahab and Jezebel's effort to bring in uh, bring in the Baals. So they they want to bring in a fertility religion. They want to, and fertility religions are all about going green. They they want the place to be lush and green. So you bring in the fertility uh, gods and god and goddess, and Israel turns brown, brown and crispy. And so, because God Yahweh is the one who controls the rain uh, in the heavens, right? So what's happening is we are being uh, chased out of clean energy and into dirty energy, and we're being chased there by environmentalists. That's what's happening. If we, um, if we said you've got the uh, not in my backyard principle, if you have enough uh, scary things, ha- uh, you know, if people um, say, well, uh, not in my backyard, I don't want a, a nuclear power plant, or I, I, you, scary stories are circulated about it. Well, I lived, I lived on a nuclear submarine for two years, uh, a fast attack submarine, which meant that I, uh, well, there's, I, I would go to, I would go to sleep at night when we were on a northern run, I'd go to sleep at night about 10, 10 feet away from a nuclear torpedo. And I was not that far away from the reactor compartment. And everybody on the submarine had to wear a little badge uh, on their belt that would pick up radioactivity. And I think it was once a month, we would turn the badge into the hospital corpsman and he would evaluate how much radiation you got. And in all my time in the Navy um, on this nuclear submarine, so this was two years on nuclear submarine, on all my time in the Navy, I got less radiation from that reactor than I would have gotten in an afternoon at the beach. So the the thing that you have to re- thing that you have to recognize is that, I, and I think I've said this before, uh, the basic difference between conservatives and liberals is that conservatives think instinctively in terms of trade-offs, and liberals think instinctively in terms of solutions. Liberals are the ones who go shopping and they never want to look at the price tag. Uh, a conservative goes shopping and he looks at a, let's say, a shirt he wants to buy or um, a rifle he wants to buy or a car he wants to buy. He looks at the price tag and he thinks to himself something like, "If I buy this car or this rifle or this shirt for this for this price, then the consequence will be I will not have money available." to buy that other item that I had my eye on last week. That's what I mean, thinking in terms of trade-offs. So he's thinking in terms of trade-offs. If I do this, that will exclude doing that. Um, The liberal, the progressive, is the impulse buyer. He looks at it, he decides whether or not he wants it, and he buys it, and consequences be damned. So what he's doing is he's he's not thinking, he says, I'm cold, I need a coat, or I'm I'm looking pretty uh, drab. I need a bright new shirt. I you know, he, and so he buys the shirt because he's thinking in terms of solutions. I need a shirt. There's a shirt. I'm going to buy the shirt. And he doesn't think in terms of the downstream consequences. And nowhere is the gulf between these two kinds of thinking 
uh, more apparent than when it comes to the supply of energy. Uh, people are just just chasing the next shiny thing. Here, here's one example. I'll, I'll close this uh, point. Um, in California, where they are, uh, electric cars are all the thing, right? Uh, everybody have an electric car. Well, what happens when energy management is such that uh, California goes through rolling brownouts or blackouts? What, what happens when you have uh, a bunch of the population that has electric cars and no electricity? Now what? Well, it's because somebody was thinking of in terms of a solution, but didn't factor in the consequences of what would happen if they did this, if they did this thing. Always will be God. So continuing with the podcast, episode 250. As we continue to make progress as hamartiology majors, we come to the word enduno, enduno, E-N-D-U-N-O, enduno, which is found one time in the New Testament. It's a hopox, and it's rendered as creep. Not the noun, look at that creep, but creep is a verb. It's rendered as creep. The context makes it plain why it's a sin. So in 2 Timothy 3.6, it says, for of this sort are they which creep, there it is, which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers' lusts. So, of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers' lusts. All right, so false teachers are sneaky. False teachers, they're not upright. They don't speak the truth straight. This is why a false teacher is not going to knock on the front door of some silly woman's house, his satchel filled with erroneous literature, and say, Hello, I'm here from the devil, and I've come to lead you astray. That's not how it goes. That's not how it goes. So Paul says that Satan himself is an angel of light. That's in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, And so it's not surprising that his emissaries deck themselves out as something they are not. They deck themselves out as something they are not. And in order to do this, they have to sneak. In order to do this, they have to creep. In order to do this, they have to snevel their way in. They use flattery. They use blandishments. They use bribery. They, they use everything that people might want, uh, whether it's lust or greed or anger or fear. False teachers snevel in. They creep in. And who's vulnerable? Well, Silly people. God don't never change. He's God. So, in episode 250 of the podcast, we come now to the book review. Uh, I'd like to review this time a, uh, a, a book I'm conflicted about. Okay. Uh, it's a very good book on, on the one hand and a really pro problematic for me on, on the other. And I'll explain that in a minute. It's a book by Oz Guinness and it's called The Magna Carta of Humanity. The Magna Carta of Humanity. Um, and I'll give you the bottom line why it's so good and the bottom line of why it's so concerning. Os Guinness. I like Os Guinness's work. I've uh, read him off and on uh, for years. He does good stuff. He was, um, he, he grew up out of the Francis Schaefer, Francis Schaefer's circle. He's um, just done a lot of good, just done a lot of good. Okay. Um, he was a guest of mine on Man Rampant one time. Um, I really appreciate him. 
And this book is really good. I'll start with the good, I'll give you a bottom line why it's good, a bottom line why it's concerning, and maybe talk a little bit about it. Um, one of the thes- the central driving thesis of this book is that uh, we have to choose between the revolution of 1776 and the revolution of 1789. Uh, that's the structuring device of this book. We either follow the way of 1776, the American Revolution, or we follow the way of 1789, the French Revolution, the way of the leftist progressive um, utopian revolutionary. Uh, 1776 versus 1789. He does this uh, arguing that the foundational framework for the 1776 um, revolution, he traces it back to Sinai, uh, the giving of the law. And he, he's, he's magnificent on um, the, bal- the need for the balance of form and freedom. Uh, he's really strong on bounded rights, not unlimited individual rights that d- devolve into anarchy and not oppressive totalitarianism either. He's just, he's just balanced. He's just a balanced guy. The thing, that's the um, thesis of the book. Um, form and freedom together, um, God's law given, de- given and delivered God's way is liberating. Okay. Um, the problem uh, with the book or the thing that just uh, gives me pause is that his work is heavily dependent on uh, uh, s- certain modern rabbis. And um, so he consistently throughout the book, without, ex- without devoting any uh, attention to solving the theological problem this generates, is he talks about the, the Jewish and the Christian traditions stand for this. Um, and he quotes no, 90%. His quotations are from rabbis, most of them modern, occasionally an ancient rabbi, an old-time rabbi. And what the and the and yet the book the things the particular things that he's saying are really wise. the The thing that gives me pause is that it's a Christless wisdom. Uh, Christ is not in the middle of this, uh, he, and he's he's writing as a Christian, and he gives um, honor to Christians who've done it right. He you know he's not ashamed at all of being a Christian or um, or declaring that Christianity supplies uh, that which he says is needed. But he also is very clear that Judaism supplies the same thing. And and this means that the Q&A time after his lecture really ought to be lively, right? How is it possible? <laughs> How is this possible? Now, uh, let me just full disclosure here. I know that there are aspects of this that are possible, but we really need to confront how it's possible. So there are Jewish uh, scholars that have, uh, in their exegesis of Scripture, have been a real help to me. the The reformers, the reformers, went and studied Hebrew uh, from the rabbis. They they learned Hebrew from the rabbis and learned from the rabbis. And you'll occasionally see one of the reformers quoting a rabbinical source uh, having to do with some passage in the Old Testament. Uh, but, you know, uh, Robert Alter, for example, is uh, a very fine 
scholar, and he's done some really fine work on the text. And the rabbis that Guinness is quoting uh, often make very shrewd observations about the text. Now, they're not making shrewd observations about the book of Romans or the book of Galatians. They're making shrewd observations about the Old Testament scriptures, but they really are shrewd and they really are wise and they really, uh, you know, this is this is good stuff. This is good stuff. Uh, and if someone went through and on the uh, um, the book and and whited out all the rabbis and said, as Richard Sibbs once said, as Richard Baxter once said, as um, John Knox once said, as John Calvin once said, and did all that. Um, almost all Christian, all Reformed Christians would walk away with a sense of, man, that was, that's a lot of good wisdom there. But after a while, you say, how, how is it possible for Os Guinness to think that these people can have all this Christless wisdom? Is Christless wisdom even possible? Now, I'm, if you, there, they said it. There you are reading, reading it. And you say, yeah, that's true. And I could make a case for that thing that he's saying. I could, as a Christian, I could make a case for that thing that he's arguing from a New, New Testament passage. Uh, okay, that's good. But it really needs to be confronted. Uh, in, in other words, when you, see, uh, when you see the encounters of the apostles with the rabbis of their generation, and when you see what was done to Jesus by the, by the rabbis of that generation, uh, that has to be factored in somehow, does it, does it not? Um, and I'm not saying this um, with any um, deference to the blood guilt uh, argument that certain anti-Semitic people make. I, I, have a real, um, I have a real problem with anti-Semitism. On the one hand, I have a, uh, that that is just an anti-Pauline way of thinking, and uh, Os Guinness is good to chastise it as he does in various places in this book, and you know that's that's very good. But however, however, um, the whether or not Christ was the Messiah is not a bagatelle. Whether or not Christ was railroaded by the Sanhedrin. And came back from the dead. That's not that's not an incidental thing. That's something that we have to take into account. Now, uh, I I'm very interested in having a discussion with somebody about this. So, is it possible? Is it possible to say that uh, our liberties are grounded and founded on two religions, Judaism and Christianity? Uh, is is that coherent? I think there's a certain level of incoherence in it. Uh, at the same time, the the book that these rabbis are resting on is the book that I read faithfully, preach from regularly, uh, read devotionally. We're you know we're reading the same text. They read the Psalms. I read the Psalms. They read Proverbs. I read the Proverbs. They read Isaiah. I read Isaiah. Okay, so there's going to be some, uh, some of what they're doing is going to map onto what, some of what I'm doing. But nevertheless, Christ, we're Christians, and Christ uh, can't be relegated to a footnote. So this is a really good book, the Magna Carta of Humanity. It's really good on a lot of the political issues, a lot of the churn that we're going through now. Um, but that's my one 
caveat, and it's not a small one. 